Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. We have a really fun show for you today. I'm gonna to introduce you to two guys who made a song that you've probably been singing for most of your life. John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero of The Kings, said, We never made a million dollars, but we had a song that people love and has stood the test of time. Forty years ago, this summer, The Kings released their Bob Ezrin-produced debut album, The Kings Are Here, on the U.S. major label Elektra Records. That same month, their smash hit single, This Beat Goes On, Switching the Glide, first entered the Billboard Hot 100. On August 23, 1980, the Kings closed the now legendary Heatwave Festival, a giant outdoor concert some called the Punk Woodstock. It drew 100,000 people to Mossport Park, just north of Bowmanville, Ontario. The Kings played alongside rock royalty like the Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, The Pretenders, Nick Lowe and Rockpile, Teenage Head, the B-52s, and more. Now, the Kings and Teenage Head were the only bands that gave permission to be filmed. As Teenage Head's audio has disappeared, the Kings have the only surviving, authentic, original sync footage from that legendary concert. And that's what we're here to talk about today, and other stuff too. The exclusive release of The Kings, live at Heatwave, a 30-minute concert movie. And of course, we'll celebrate four decades of one of the greatest double A-sides ever. This beat goes on, switching to Glide. And I had such fun talking to these guys. We Zoomed from their rehearsal hall, which is kind of like a hard rock cafe with only Kings memorabilia. It is such fun. Please meet Dave Diamond, he's the vocalist and bass player, and John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero, guitarist for The Kings. I will start with by going back just like just a little bit before Heat Wave and a, just a little bit before 1980. And you considered yourself to be a prog rock band, but when I think of The Kings, um, I think of them as new wave. Now, is it just the time that you happen to come out? Well, we when we first started, we were young and kind of full of beans, and uh, we had a lot of musical ideas. And so we wrote these six or seven minute songs that had all a million changes and chords <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And then um, <laughs> right around 78 or somewhere in 79, um, we started wanting to play more shows and of course the kind of music that we were doing and so we kind of went into in the bars doing more songs by the cars or cheap trick right. or that kind of thing and then uh, we never really learned anything note for note we did it our way and then it, it kind of bled over into us working on our own songs right. and trying to be more three minute commercial type of you know hits if you want to call it that right yeah we did have like seven eight minute long songs you know after listening to bands like yes and you know uh, all that kind of stuff we were working to do that and we had some great songs but you know nobody wanted to sit around for seven eight minutes yeah so it ended up we started working on three minute things and we have a talent for it zero and i it seems you know yeah so it was uh 
you know, it's it's fun to try to, to, to follow that formula, if you want to call it that, of, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, mm -hmm. you know, and all that. And, uh, but it, there really is an act to it. And coming up with all the parts, because uh, you need a, you know, like an intro. <laughs> you know, you need a hook, right? And so Dave came up with that. You know, and so that was the thing that grabbed our attention when he first started playing it when we we're doing a sound check at a gig and then um you know that led to what's that and then it turned into well it's just something he was working on and then we put it together and you know came up with this beat goes on and then switching to glad was basically the same kind of story well there because what people don't realize is that they were written as two completely different songs well in a way they were yes yeah and and um like, like the this beat goes on song, it gets to the end and it goes, this beat goes on and on and on. And so we were going, well, how are we going to end this thing? <laughs> Basically, because it on and on. And then um, I had this idea of da 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 idea in my head. And Zero goes, I have this idea, switching the glide, you know? And I went da 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 switching the glide, and it fit together. And then we said, we thought, well, this beat goes on and on and on. Let's just switch into glide, you know? Basically, is that how it happened? Sonny Keys came up with the glide that, that, that fit the two songs together. On uh, the mini Boom. mode, yeah. And there it was, and we went, this is great. <laughs> you know, when you sort of know when something is good, you get that, that feeling, you know? And I was driving down the road, and I was thinking about um, when we used to go on vacation when we were kids, we'd go to like a... Uh, you know, in a park somewhere or something. And if there was a hill, my dad would put the car in neutral to go down the hill. Um, so save gas, if you want to yeah, call yeah. it that. And then I just thought about being up in an airplane and turning off the motor and switching to glide. And that was kind of the, uh, the idea behind switching to glide was getting a free ride, if you want. And and, and, and that translated to just fitting in perfectly with the music ideas that Dave had. You're listening to my interview with Dave Diamond and John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero of the Kings. We're talking about the making of their double A-sided giant hit song, This Beat Goes On, Switching to Glide. Was it road tested? Did you play it live a bunch of times? We did, uh, we did the demo of it. We had booked some time. Um, we were, we got enough songs together. We were playing with bars around Ontario and all that. We were writing songs in these lousy hotel rooms. <laughs> we have some of those old, you know, pieces of paper on the, uh, you know, with the- Written the, on anything. Yeah, written on anything. On menus, on, on anything. Yeah, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the logo of some lousy motel on the top of the page, <laughs> uh, envelopes, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, but we had rehearsed those songs yeah, and, we, and there was a version of it on our, um, the. We went into Nimbus to record a, our what we thought would be our indie album, and then we were lucky enough to run into Bob Ezrin there. And okay, so let's stop the story here just for a second because yeah. Bob Ezrin had produced The Wall by that point. Uh, he had worked with Kiss, done Kiss Destroyer. I mean, the list goes on. Worked with Lou Reed. I mean, th this was really something. So you're recording at Nimbus Nine Studios, which is a big deal anyway. And then you happen to run into probably the hottest rock producer in the world. So tell me how that worked. 
well, we were, well, we had booked, like we were just saying, we had booked time because we had met uh, Jack Richardson. We had, mm -hmm. we won a homegrown contest way back in the late seventies before this all started. And we had met Jack Richardson and he, his home base was Nimbus. Yeah. And Bob. That's where he recorded the Guess Who and, yeah. and all those bands. Yeah. And, and Bob had worked pretty much cut his teeth with, with Jack you know, teaching Bob all kinds of stuff at Nimbus in this same studio. And we do happen to have some, there was some time that was available for us. Yeah, we kind of got in on the off hours kind yeah, of deal of like thing. you do when you don't have any money. And, and Jack <laughs> was there sort of helping us a little bit and going, well, you guys go ahead and do what you want and I'm going to go do what I'm doing, you know. Right. <laughs> but while we were in there, Bob was back in Toronto after being in England for a couple of years with Pink Floyd doing, doing, the, doing wall, the wall yeah. and it was out. And we knew that, you know, it was just taking off all over the place. And our manager kind of just sort of got him alone in a room and they started talking and that. And we gave him a cassette and he took it home and his kids liked it. He, they like switching the glide and they like It's Okay. And these other songs of up-tempo kind of fun songs that we had. And we didn't know until this year that Bob was actually actively looking for a Toronto-based band to work with because um, we've heard from a couple of friends that they auditioned for him or they were in the process of, 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 of getting the, the opportunity to play for him. But he picked us for whatever reason. I mean, you know, we think it's because we were good. And <laughs> basically, <laughs> so, so then, you know, it was, um, but the first thing that we worked out with him was to, to mix the, the demo type thing that we had of Switch and the Glide. And this beat goes on. And so he did that. And he, you know, once you take the tracks apart, if you're a guy like that, you go, well, these kids don't know what they're doing. And so he, he said, you know, he said, this is good stuff, but you don't know what you're doing. We got to start fresh again. And we're going, oh no, we just recorded 10 songs and spent every cent we had. Yeah. And he says, well, we're going to start over again, fresh. It was like, oh, my so God. So he said, look, it, I go, let me go down to L.A. And I know an A&R guy there at Electra Records. And, of course, as you just said, being the number one producer in the world at the time helps when you're going in with an unknown project. <laughs> but they said yes. They played him the, uh, the, the version that we had of this beat, Switching to Glide. And, you know, the legend is that they were playing it in the office of this A&R guy right on La Cienega Boulevard where uh, Electra Records had their office. And the window was open and some kids were outside dancing on the sidewalk to it. And of course, we, you know, in subsequent years, every time we start that rip, they start, the dance floor fills up and we've had other bands that do, yeah. co that cover it. And DJs have got hold of us that just say, as oh, soon yeah. as that thing starts, the dance floor fills up, which is you know, a key to selling more beer, you know, oh, yeah. which is what we all want when we're in a club, right? So, and that started the interest from Electra to work with that song as a particular single. And then when the, we finished the album, we, we came back, Bob came back with the deal for us. So we went into rehearsal for four weeks at a rehearsal place over on Jarvis. And then we got into the studio and, and really concentrated on this beat switching to glide and there was one point where he said you know there's something wrong with this song now that's what you call a cliffhanger when we come back we'll pick up the story of the making of this beat goes on and switching to glide with two members of the kings dave diamond and john picard aka mr zero stay with us 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. When we left, we were midway through my conversation with two members of The Kings, Dave Diamond, the vocalist and the bass player, and John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero, the guitar player for the band. We're talking about the making of one of the greatest double A-sided singles ever. This beat goes on, switching the glide. Now, when we left the story, they were in Nimbus 9 Studios recording the song, but the producer, Bob Ezrin, the hottest producer in the world, he had just produced Pink Floyd's The Wall, he had done Destroyer for Kiss, he told them there was something wrong with the song. We'll let the guys pick up the story. And so Dave went and fixed the chords to it. If you listen to the original demo, it's actually on the internet. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it is different, the structure of the song. And then we rewrote all that and rewrote all the lyrics and just, yeah. <laughs> just made it hookier and more... Um, it was it was more indulgent before but but what we came up with you know the recorded version that we put out with bob was just incredible and it still stands up it sounds great it still sounds great we but it always it. was a segue always was a segue so yeah. but it was two songs put together i'll tell you i hear that song <laughs> five times a week anyway on the radio and have for 40 years i mean it's, it's really remarkable to have a song, to have a hit song, to get signed to a, a record label it, like Electra, the home of the doors and, you know, all those other bands, Love, Arthur Lee and Love. And, and uh, to have a chance meeting with Bob Ezrin, number one producer in the world, and he produces this. But then on top of that, you, you are now 40 years into this. And that song is still, people that weren't born when you wrote it, know the lyrics that are probably playing it in cover bands somewhere well they do and we hear from some younger fans that uh it's very gratifying because you know like you say it, it's on the radio all the time and, and and a lot of parents have turned their kids on to classic rock which is a good thing yeah you know we're happy about that yeah yeah because we all lament the you know the supposed death of rock music but it's not dead it's not dead at all it's all it's all in the song i, I think uh Again, like he was saying, with the kids, we, it's, it's funny, we'll be at a gig playing and some gal will come up and say, can you sign, and bring the old album cover or something, and can you guys sign this for my mom and dad? You know, they were, <laughs> I'm growing, and, this, and the gal's like, you know, 40-some yeah. years old, you know. Or, wow. Yeah, some young, good-looking girl, and you think, hey, we still uh, got it. Yeah, can you sign this for my <laughs> mom and dad? No, I'm not sure. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Dave Diamond and John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero of the Kings. We're talking about the making of their double-sided hit single, The Beat Goes On, and Switching the Glide turns 40 years old this year. So I think that uh, the music, obviously, you know, is, is so hooky and it, and it stays in your head, and that's why it works. But I think that the lyrics are a lot of the appeal of this song as well, right? And so a couple of questions about that. Uh, was there a Judy? Was there a Trudy? Uh, or, or were they just names that rhymed? Well, actually, when I was working on that, it was um, somehow it got into my head that, you, you know, the old name game song, right? Banana, banana, bobana. And I just thought there hadn't been a name song in a while. And so it just seemed to make sense. I thought, well, that's a, at least a start and an idea to go with. And then I just thought, well, Trudy, Judy, and then I'm feeling moody. All right, well, that's good. Hey, Judy. Hey, Judy. 
And then Donna and Juana, and then what, you know, and then Tarana was just. <laughs> that may be the greatest rhyme in all of like Ontario rock and roll, if not in Canada. Those Ron three was together. Just waiting for it, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, it was really a, a lucky, it just like sometimes when you're writing lyrics to songs, you can paint yourself into a corner, right? If you're, if you're trying to keep it in a strict rhyming scheme. But that time it was like, it, it, it had to be that, right? It couldn't be anything else. And so, and we got a t-shirt. I, I bought it at the, in Hamilton a year or so ago at, a, at one of the festivals there. And it's got the different spellings, uh, pronunciations of Tirana. So it's T-E-R-R-A-N-O and T-R-A-W-A-N-O and, you know, all these different. And so he wears it at gigs sometimes. It's pretty good. And the other one was Nothing Matters But The Weekend, which is also gets a yeah. lot of uh, yeah. people remember that one. And that one was, that one came pretty easy from a Tuesday point of view. It was okay, that's good. But the next line was really hard. Like a kettle in the kitchen, I feel the steam begin to brew. That took a long time to get that <laughs> one because it just, when you start with something that's really good, the rest of it has to be really good, right? <laughs> You know, like you're setting yourself up to fail. And so that's where the real work and effort comes in to try to make it as good as the whole thing. And I think that when you say that the lyrics are an important part, I mean, I worked really hard on all that. And Well, did either of you or anyone in the band actually own a Mercedes? Because that's the other famous line that sticks in everybody's head. Well, yeah, we had... Uh, there was had, a couple actually. It was a couple point. back in the there were all these junkers, but one was a 65 220, and the other one that was the main one in the song was a 64 220S. But the one that was mainly in the song, the uh, the red one was breaking down. And then on the way to a gig, I saw another one in a garage where we were getting gas. And so the, it was like seven or eight hundred dollars. And, <laughs> and, uh, we, and we drove that for a year or two, and it was a really fun car that's like those old kinds you see them in old european movies they just they yeah. use them as taxis over there yeah. right and four speed on the tree like you know gear shift four speed with reverse on on the, the steering column yeah, right? yeah it was a good it was a good car for a while and then it just kind of fell apart like they all do <laughs> yeah. but it, it makes for a great line in the song it did yeah you and, know. Um, and so that has a basis in truth and we did have a lot of fun with it for sure We're midway through my conversation about the making of one of the greatest double A-sided singles ever. This beat goes on and switching to glide. I'm talking to Dave Diamond. He's the vocalist and bass player on it. And John Picard, a.k.a. Mr. Zero, the guitar player on that song. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation and we'll talk about the Heat Wave Festival. It was called the New Wave Woodstock. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. You've been listening to me in conversation with Dave Diamond and John Picard of The Kings. We've been talking about their classic double A-sided single, 
This Beat Goes On, Switching to Glide. That song is 40 years old. It's racked up 41 million views on YouTube. And this year, to celebrate the release of not only that single, but playing at the Heatwave Festival, one of the most memorable punk rock new wave concerts of all time. 100,000 people showed up. You'll hear us talk about it in a second at a big park outside of Toronto. Elvis Costello, The Pretenders, Every band that was popular in that moment, in 1980, played there. And the Kings closed the show. They went on at midnight. And now they have found the only surviving footage from that night. They've remastered it. They've cleaned it up. It's called The Kings Live at Heatwave. And it is available right now on their YouTube channel. Let's get back to Dave Diamond and John Picard. They'll fill in the rest of the details. So when this song becomes such a big hit on both sides of the border. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Most bands work forever to have a song that, that people uh, respond to. What was it like having a big hit song like that? Well, first of all, the record company put out Switching to Glide on its own and it didn't do much. Yes. And then we were pressuring the record company and so was the, the people in the promo department of Electra to put out the segue and they're going, it's five and a half minutes long and you know all this kind of you know, negative uh, stuff. And so they finally did it. And that's when the phone started to ring because like you say, I mean, you know, you could have switch and glide on its own, but without the, you know, Hey Judy and Trudy, I mean, that's, that gets yeah. the whole thing started. And there's a friend of ours in Chicago, Bob Stroud, who worked at WMET. And, you know, we had lunch with him last time we were down there and he's, he was a, a famous DJ in Chicago. And he said, man, the first time I heard it, I knew it was a hit, you know, it just, it just from the get go. Yeah. And Switching to Glide couldn't have done that on its own. It had, it had to be both songs. It's like a whirlwind in that that fall was just, and then we ended up playing uh, on American Bandstand, Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Now, I've seen this. I've seen yeah. this. So <laughs> what was Dick Clark really for? like? <laughs> well, I mean, that was, uh, you know, uh, we was, had a guy, the, an American manager who came, banged on our door in Toronto. He said, do you know what you're doing in the States? And it was like, you know, <laughs> what, what no, are you talking you, about? You know, we were really hicks from the sticks. And so, you know, he was a guy that opened up a lot of doors for us. Randy Phillips was his name. And and God bless our Canadian manager, Gary Pring. But, you know, they were kind of out of our depth when we were trying to do more in the States. And this guy was a real, Randy was a real go-getter, went on to manage Prince and then Broad Stewart and became the head of AEG, one of the biggest executives in the music business. And so we were the first band he really worked with that did anything. And he was pretty instrumental in working with the, the promotion company uh, at Electra. And, and that's what got us into ABC studio with Dick Clark that one day. And we were on with uh, uh, Rockpile and Nick Lowe. Lowe. Wow. We were at the, the Heat Wave Festival that we had just played yeah, yeah. In, earlier yeah. in, in, in August. And this was in, De in December, early December. We yeah, so when we, when we walked in the door, because he, he taped like five shows of, uh, every every month or something. Yeah, he was a busy man. On one day. And then Cool and the gang were doing uh, Celebrate. Yeah they, yeah, they were on the show before. So they were, so it was like a big giant dressing room with all these famous or newly famous yeah, people yeah. all mingling together. And it was it was quite a thing. Oh, and that's he, cool. Yeah, yeah, it was really exciting. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we were out in the parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> this is good. And... Uh, and Randy, our manager, he had a he borrowed a Rolls Royce to take us to the gig or something. It was a convertible Corniche. Yeah, it was something. Like something. It was a yeah. night, you know. And then Dick Clark came out with his wife and got into a station wagon and drove away. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're getting into this convertible 
roles, you know, big showy, <laughs> showy, blah, blah, you know, fake stuff. And then he gets into the station like, well, see you, boys, thanks. He, he probably owned his. I only ran on his. So. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Dave Diamond and John Picard of the Kings. So let's talk about Heat Wave. Now, this is a big deal. Uh, you know, 85,000 people show up. And then Dan Aykroyd talks about it on the radio and another 15,000 people load in there. There's a hundred thousand people at this concert. It's an all-star lineup. I get that. I get the size and the whole thing. They called it like the new wave Woodstock. Did it feel like a big deal on the night when you were there? Well, yeah, we got there during the day. Um, A couple of the guys in our band, uh, came in on the helicopter, but we drove in in his yeah. Volkswagen van. We had a Volkswagen <laughs> camper van, of course. <laughs> and so we were there earlier all day long, but there was helicopters and there was, uh, you know, it was a big, it, it, we were so excited. And yeah. and by the time we got to the stage, which is we, we closed this, we, they, we, we weren't the headliners, but we played last after Elvis Costello. But by then we were just, and you can, I think you can see, but you've seen a bit of the footage there. We were just, you know, ready to blow up. You know, we had been sitting around all day, and it was such an exciting thing meeting with all these other famous people. That but the, you know, the, and the funny thing is that John Brower, the notorious uh, promoter from uh, Toronto, who put on the Toronto Pop Festival and brought Yoko and John over here and brought Led Zeppelin to the Rock Pile and all that, he, and we knew him that year, and he thought we were good enough to play on that show, and so. And we actually, it's important to mention, we did get paid. <laughs> you know, because you hear about a lot of these concerts where yeah. you don't get paid, we got paid. And so that was, uh, that was important, actually, at the time, you know. Well, you, you were one of only two acts. You and Teenage Head were the only acts that were filmed. Yeah. Now, this is such a landmark. Why, why did they not film the whole thing? Well, John... Had brought in Doug McClement, who you probably know because he's uh, he, he runs Livewire yes. Sound now, and he's done the Olympics and every Juno Awards and everything. He's a great guy. He was there in his Comfort Sound truck, which had a little eight-track half-inch uh, recorder in it, and his assistant was Blair Packham from the Jitters. And of course, <laughs> yeah, another and radio. Yeah, and we radio. were all you know young guys at the time, and. Um, and so the they, they went to everybody in all the bands and said, we have a film crew here and a sound truck. Let us record and film it, and we'll put it in a vault, and we'll figure it all out later. Right. And everybody said no, except us and the Teenage Head. And, yeah. and it, it's wow. a shame. It's, think of how great a movie that would be, because... Defenders, yeah. Talking Heads, uh, Rock, B-52s. Yeah. yeah. Rock Costello, yeah. Unbelievable, yeah. And so now, 40 years later, you have this footage that's been restored. So there's about half an hour of it, right? That is, that, that uh, exists, synced sound. It is, it is the, the only document really from that night. That's true. Um, we, uh, what happened was that the film, all that stuff disappeared for, for at least into the 90s. And so I think at some point in the 90s, I tried to track it all down. And I found out somehow the name of the production company was called Loron Films. And so they were still in business. And it was one of those film companies that does documentaries and commercials and, you know, a variety of different things. And so they were the company that John Brower got into to, to shoot the heat wave show. And then, so I found that and then I was talking to the guy and then he said, you know, you're lucky because last week we were cleaning out our warehouse and Again, the timing. We had the dumpster outside, and I was going through the shelves like this, a heat wave. Oh, we'll save that one. 
Wow. And he said the dumpster was full of old stuff that they didn't need anymore. But he saved heat wave and he says, you're lucky I saved it and you can have it. So you can, he gave it to us gratis, you know, for ownership and everything else. And then it was a matter of tracking down the sound. I think we got that from Doug. The sound of the picture, I mean, it's as good as it can be. And it captures us just at our peak with the original band when we were, uh, when the single was just breaking. And uh, it's funny though, we're wearing all these kind of funny clothes and all that. And then... Uh, there's a story we tell in our documentary, Anatomy of a One-Hit Wonder, where we're playing in Denver. It was our first U.S. show, and they flew us down to open for Jeff Beck in, in Denver, of all places. And, you know, we go out there with our yeah. spandex pants and our, you know... Zebra stripes. And, you know. But the thing is, we weren't advertised on the bill. We were filling in for... There was some other band had canceled. So the crowd, you know, these, these young blue jean, long-haired, torn right. blue jean rock guys, see us come out there, oh, man. <laughs> So yeah, they were, we stood our ground for half an hour, boy. We we stood and played, and we took it. We but they were it. throwing stuff at us and booing us. And at one point, the our lighting guy Gord had the uh, you know beginning of the song, "My Habit." I think they, you know, when they used to put the spots all around the the, yeah. the, the arena or whatever, and uh, <laughs> you know the spotlights were reaching the farthest corners of this arena, and everybody in the place was on their feet, <laughs> giving like, us a finger, uh, like. <laughs> everybody all the way to the back you can see them giving us the finger like this that's a great story that was john picard and dave diamond of the kings find out all about their music at thekingsarehere.com or check out their very popular youtube site in the first part of the show i spoke with the kings about making their classic single this beat goes on with the b-side switch and the glide we spoke about the producer of that record, that's Bob Ezrin. If you are the type of music fan who reads the liner notes on albums, you surely know that name. Bob Ezrin is best known for his work with people you might have heard of, like Lou Reed, Alice Cooper, Kiss, Pink Floyd, Deep Purple, Peter Gabriel, Andrea Bocelli, and Fish. His career in music has spanned four decades, and he continues to work with acts like the Deftones and 30 Seconds to Mars. I went back to the vault to find an interview I did with Bob Ezrin on the phone from his Los Angeles home way back in 1994. In this segment, we talk about how he got his first big musical break producing Alice Cooper and some fascinating behind-the-scenes stories of working with Alice Cooper and Peter Gabriel. From 26 years ago, here's a youngish me, a little overawed at speaking to the man who made some of my favorite records. Here's Bob Ezrin on why he got the gig to produce Alice Cooper. Nobody wanted to touch him except me. Uh, I went and saw them play live in, in New York City and I flipped. I thought that, um, I, I mean, I really thought I'd seen the future. I was in a club full of people in spandex and spider eyes. and uh, <laughs> Was that uh, Max's Kansas City? Yeah, yeah. Max's Kansas City. And uh, and every song that, that Alice did, they knew all the words to, and they knew all the actions. and um, It was very much, you know, it's kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show now. Yeah. That you get that sort of cult following where people show up in the same uniforms and costumes and they know all the story. and They throw toast around. Right. And that. Now, that was exactly what was going on. It was audience participation rock. Uh, rock theater mm -hmm. and uh and when i came back to toronto i said you know we you know this isn't music this is a cultural movement we have to do this and uh, uh jack and uh well jack principally said you know if you think it's so good you do it <laughs> basically basically what he said so 
then the question became, how? You know, how was I supposed to do it? They didn't want me. They wanted Jack Richardson. So we, we didn't, it wasn't that we created a fiction, but what happened was, you know, Jack only accepted the gig if I was really going to be the one on the front line. He didn't really want to have too much to do with these weirdos. So I had to go off to Pontiac, Michigan by myself and do the pre-production. That's a story. That's a book in itself. What did you bring to that band? I mean, Love It to Death is... It sounds like a completely different band from uh, the albums like Easy Action and Pretties for You. Was it easier for you as an outsider to sort of sit back and, and, and listen and to know what was right for them? You can say that about any artistic endeavor. It's easier for an outsider to stand back and know what's right than it is for the person who's doing it. Right. Because they get all caught up. and um, It's the nature of, of art that it's purely subjective. But... I think that what happened was this was a very good marriage of personalities. We were all, in our own ways, very theatrical. Um, and uh, my musical background was far more classical than it was rock. So um, classical and folk. So um, uh, I brought a kind of different point of view musically to the thing. And mainly because of my lack of comfort with the medium, I required a certain order that they had never been able to achieve. You know? <laughs> and so, I mean, when we put it together, we ended up with, um, you know, we went from complete uncontrolled lunacy to a slightly more ordered, slightly more classically or folk-based um, uh, musical style. And I mean slightly than what they had before. And that was really all they needed was to be kind of, you know, righted by 10 degrees. Um, and, and then uh, aside from that, we, uh, because we all came from theater in a certain way, they were all like art school majors and, uh, uh, and, and uh, performance theater people, and I was straight out of theater theater, that we were able also to uh, uh, sharpen the focus of all the theatrical elements of the thing and to really define who and what this Alice Cooper character was. And we, you know, we did. We talked about him in the third person. Alice and I used to sit there and say, "Well, he'd do this." No, he'd say that. No, this is this is what he believes. You know, and so we really created a kind of um, an external character named Alice Cooper. I met him recently and and just very briefly, and he seemed like a really really nice guy. Not at all like the the um, sort of image that you would have of him. Very special. Mm-hmm. But. Um, He's been through a lot of stuff. Yeah. It took a long time to get there. Yeah. He was never, never arrogant. He was never nasty. He was never anything but humble and sweet. But he was, um, he did go through, through periods where he was wrestling with devils. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, all of us did. Any of us who were successful did. I, I can't think of anybody who made it through this, the, you know, the, go, the sort of golden age of rock that isn't scarred in some way, you know. You're listening to my interview with legendary producer Bob Ezrin. Well, Alice Cooper, for instance, I've heard that quite often when they went in the studio, there were no lyrics, and he would write studio lyrics in the studio. Is that true? No. No? No. I mean, he would write lyrics in the studio, yeah. but it wasn't that there were no lyrics, it's that they were never finished. He always had, I mean, we always went in knowing what we were, what, what the song was about. Right. So that... When we created all those, you know, interesting little intros and middle sections and all that other stuff that was all relevant to the subject matter, which is really important because a lot of stuff is just kind of, it travels on two levels um, uh, where you have, you know, the music on the one hand and lyrics almost entirely separate and other, uh, separate and outside. And, 
and that makes a kind of disjointed experience. You never quite emotionally completely connect, not in the same way that you did. It's why you look at that. It's why you look at some of that Alice Cooper material and go, you know, man, that was really special. And why you don't see um, a lot of the stuff that you listen to now having the same effect. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it really ha- it does boil down to craft in a way. Although we weren't really aware that we were crafty, we we just sort of did it because that was how we did it and because in a sense each of us came to this business of rock from some other art form so what we did was we brought techniques from other art forms to the making of rock music and and that made us make it in a different maybe more considered way You know, you want stories, we got a million stories. <laughs> I mean, you know, some of them are not printable. Right. Uh, mainly, you know, how about, you know, we were in the middle of doing Only Women Bleed and we just couldn't get it. Uh, we were we had been working on it for hours and hours and hours. So I hired the circus and, uh, and um, didn't tell anybody. So we were in the middle of a take and suddenly the door bursts open and in comes, uh, you know, midgets and acrobats <laughs> and a juggler and a magician and people blowing whistles and the band the funny thing was it was like we were we were we were in the middle of playing only women bleed which is a pretty you know yeah. intense ballad mm-hmm. the door burst open in comes the circus the band took one look and broke into you know broke into a <laughs> little circus march without losing a beat wow. which was really great you know they just fell right into the spirit of it the circus went to work you know Alice was sitting there completely uh, he was, he was like Polak, you know, he was sitting in his chair going, what the hell is going on? And uh, everybody got into the spirit of it. We had a great sort of 20 minutes diversion. It was fabulous. The circus played. They dropped eggs all over the studio floor. <laughs> everybody laughed. They, and then they marched right back out again as though nothing had happened, you know. And, the, and then I, and I counted it in, and we played the take of Only Women Bleed. Wow. Made it to the album. She cries alone at night too often. He smokes and drinks and don't come home at all Only women bleed Only women bleed Only women bleed It, it, all, it, you know, it all went without any light. There was no talking. It, was, it all went without any verbal <laughs> communication. It just sort of happened. So... Um, well, Those were magical moments. That was great. Yeah, another magical moment um, was when we were working on Peter Gabriel, and um, uh, we were doing uh, the song "Excuse Me," um, and uh, Tony Levin was there, and we were just sort of sitting around on a break, and Tony was talking about his um, his passion, barbershop quartets, and I said, <laughs> "Wow, you know, could you put together?" a barbershop quartet for an intro for Excuse Me. He said, sure, no problem. <laughs> and we got, you know, four of the guys in the band, the musicians. These are not background singers or right. even barbershop quartet singers, and including Peter. And uh, Tony set parts, and they did that, that very strange intro to Excuse Me, which you'll find on the first Gabriel solo album. Yeah. Ooh. 
In order to get it right, of course, we had to practice it because it was like really tough to do. It's tough to sing barbershop quartet. So what we did was we we went out into Hazleton and then down to Yorkville, just singing it over and over and over <laughs> with people looking at it. Nobody knew what we were doing. You know, this group of wackos going down the street going, "Excuse me, you're stepping on my swadavie." You know, it's it was really funny. We also. Um, during that same session, tied Pete up uh, with gaffer's tape to a roller chair and rolled him down Hazleton Avenue. <laughs> uh, and he was such a good sport that, you know, once he picked up speed, he was on his own. You know, he just started going down the street by himself. And this car drove up and, and, uh, and said to him, can we help you? And he said, uh, yes, can you, could you tell me how to get to Yorkville, please? <laughs> <laughs> so, stuff like that. That was my interview with legendary rock producer Bob Ezrin. That's all the time we have for today. My thanks to Bob. My thanks to the Kings. Most of all, though, my thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon.